You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're looking together at Revelation chapter 2 as we continue through this amazing book. And we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17, and you'll find this on page 1029 of the Pew Bible. Page 1029, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, this is, as you know, the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man who stands amid the lampstands. Having sacrificed for us at the cross, he now pleads for us before the throne in heaven. And he is the reigning king and the great high priest, able to save us to the uttermost. In the presence of his heavenly Father, he appears with our names etched close to his heart. And his attributes, as we discovered in chapter 1, are unparalleled among men because he is able to save us to the uttermost by his very strength and sufficiency. To the seven churches he speaks, and in so doing he addresses the entire church because seven is the number of completeness. He knows the condition of each one, the needs that are both physical and spiritual, and he instructs and blesses accordingly. The lagging church in Ephesus abandoned its first love, and they needed to do the works they had done at first. The little church in Smyrna is described as materially poor, but is really spiritually rich. The lax church at Pergamum has allowed the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and he's calling upon them to repent. For 400 years, the city of Pergamum was the capital of Asia. It vied for preeminence with Ephesus and Smyrna. It was built on a great hill from which they could behold the Mediterranean Sea about 15 miles away. 
It was the center of worship for Asclepius, which was the god of healing. We know the sign of healing with the serpent around the pole. They had a temple and a hospital dedicated to Asclepius. There were other pagan altars, such as that for Zeus and Dionysius, Athena and Demeter. And as in Smyrna, so here in Pergamum, the citizens were compelled to worship Caesar. And of course, in so doing, they would deny Christ. And the Lord Jesus says that these Christians at Pergamum were close to making shipwreck of their faith. He warns them of the precarious spiritual reefs which posed a threat to their souls. Not least among the reefs are the strong temptations to ethical compromise, the teaching of Balaam. So first of all, we have the title of Christ in verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And of course, this harkens back to John's vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. There in verse 16, we read, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It is a reference, of course, to the written word or the sword of the Spirit, The apostle describes it as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so it's not a dead letter, but insofar as the Spirit attends it, it is a living and active word, a sword. It revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it can enlighten the mind. And the power of God's word derives from the omnipotence of God's own Holy Spirit. In his almighty hands, the word becomes a life-giving and fruit-bearing seed, and it's sharp. It's more piercing and penetrating than any other two-edged sword known to man. It's finely honed, it's razor-sharp, it cuts both waves and it weighs, and it leaves nothing unscathed. Sometimes it saves the patient, sometimes it just cuts, but it always fulfills its purpose. And it's able to reach down to the very secret chambers of the heart, the core of one's being, as we said this morning in Sunday school. We're told that the word of God pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what we learn is that it can access the innermost recesses of the soul. What else can do that? It can flood the soul with light. And of course, as you know, nothing is more inaccessible to man than the thoughts and intentions of another's heart. But Christ's word can infiltrate even where no other sword can enter. Because unbelief, it is so subtle and so deep and so dangerous to the soul that it requires nothing less than spiritual surgery. And as the one who wields the sword, or may we call it a scalpel, Jesus performs three procedures. First of all, with that sword, he uses it to convict of sin so as to expose our guilt and corruption. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard that, it says they were cut to the heart, a scalpel. Christ's word confronts the sinner with the truth of his failure to measure up, or her failure. And no one is able to obey, as we discussed this morning. No one seeks God. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And Psalm 11 says that the Lord hates 
the wicked. That's what it says. So how miserable is the life of unbelief? If left in that condition, there is no hope of ever escaping the coming wrath. And so this is precisely why the conviction of sin is so essential, and it's actually a mercy. First use is to convict of sin. Second use, he uses it to offer the gospel as the terms of salvation extended to rebels. Christ died to obtain the forgiveness of sin and acceptance with God. Thankfully, he did. The cross is where he satisfied the law, as we heard this morning, where he appeased divine wrath and where he secured eternal life. And as a gracious king, Jesus offers this full and this free pardon to anyone who believes. No qualifications, no conditions. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. And it's the most amazing demonstration of grace that anybody has ever seen or ever will see. So he uses this word to offer the gospel. But then third, he also uses this word, the sharp two-edged sword, to assure of salvation. As the grateful soul is motivated to obedience, the spirit illuminates the promises so that the heart is strangely warmed, to use Wesley's language. He enlightens and renews so that we become thankful recipients. And the proof of his indwelling presence is an obedient Christian life. John says, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. So is not this title of Christ suitable for a church that's embroiled in corruption, like Pergamum? Today in our culture, the forces of evil are doing what they can to corrupt both the faith and the morals of its citizens. This two-edged sword in the hand of Christ is both offensive and defensive in terms of a weapon. Matthew Henry says, in the hand of God, it's able to slay both sin and sinners. With consummate skill and infinite wisdom, he convicts, he converts, he consoles, he assures, and he's able to save to the uttermost. That's the title of Christ. But then we move to the condition of the church, and the risen Lord Jesus Christ says, I know where you dwell. In other words, he's telling them, I'm fully aware of the conditions under which you live as Christians. It's not easy. It's where Satan's rule is strong and his influence is pervasive and paganism is rampant. You think it's bad here. (laughs) Try living there. It's hard to live by the cult of Asclepius and the pagan altars and the public worship of Caesar. One commentator says to be a Christian in Pergamum was to face what Cromwell called an engagement very difficult. People were required on pain of death to give the name of Lord to Caesar. And few things could be more satanic than open paganism and the occult in the streets. No wonder Pergamum was where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells, according to verse 13. The church seemed to be right in the midst of the devil's headquarters. And Christ mentions two things for which the faithful were to be commended. First of all, you hold fast to my name. You stand against idolatry. You refuse to worship the emperor. When a believer is adopted into God's family, he's given the family name. And as a child takes the surname of his father and the wife takes the surname of her husband. So the believer takes the surname of Christ. You're a Christian. 
And so he says, I commend you for not being ashamed of me and esteeming this a privilege. These Christians had refused to say that Caesar is Lord. Instead, they confessed that Jesus is Lord. They were staunchly entrenched in the truth of our Redeemer. They're commended. But then secondly, he tells them they did not deny his faith, even though some were martyred. You see, the saints at Pergamum were clinging tenaciously to orthodoxy. The faith once delivered to the saints. And they did so under very difficult conditions, and they did not deny the gospel, which is the only hope for sinners. One man contended for the faith, and he died. Antibus, my faithful witness. History, if you believe those reports, tell us that he was roasted alive inside the carcass of a bull. And thus Antipas sealed his profession with his own blood. And the saints were not deterred. We may boast of our sincerity. We may boast of our kindness. And yet we might still relinquish the faith. Paul tells Timothy that by rejecting the faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. By contrast, Pergamum saints held fast the confession, and they were to be commended. But in spite of these commendations, the Lord says there's some trouble. He said, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, and here we see that the Pergamum saints had been seduced by some of the satanic influence. You might remember how Balak, the king of Moab, enlisted the prophet Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. And when Balaam was prevented from cursing, he suggested that Balak, the king, get the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men. So in Numbers 25, it says they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, and so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. It was blatant idolatry, and it was met with a severe judgment. If you're familiar with the story, it goes on in Numbers 31 to say this, these women, on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord, and 24,000 died. It's easy to fall into idolatry when the standards of morality are loosened. Modern American culture defends loosening the moral standards. It's okay to be licentious. We're not under law, but we're under grace. Yes, indeed, grace is the soul of the gospel, and without which the gospel is dead. We need grace. It's the music of the gospel without which the gospel would be silent. But true grace does not lead to sin, and the grace of God delivers from sin. And this is one of the things that Pergamum people forgot. But then secondly, Jesus said, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They taught a worldly nonchalance, very similar, but slightly different. In other words, don't fear a little conformity. There's nothing wrong with just a little compromise. You can experiment. You can experiment sexually. Just make sure you don't go too far. 
It's really not that big of a deal at all. But you know something the Bible says we're called to be saints. The title means that we're holy ones. Holy ones. By God's grace, believers have been set apart for his own service. And we're not like the rest of the world. We're not to be like the rest of the world. We're called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. This does not mean that we hate the people of the world, but it means that we're distinct. Paul tried to get along with unbelievers, to win them, but never to compromise with them. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He never compromised the gospel or his own integrity for that end. So this, this orthodox church, very orthodox, was in danger because of a lack of discipline, a lax church. It was a true church, but it was an unhealthy church. The leaders had neglected their duty. They allowed error to gain access, and they allowed immorality to poison the church. The devil's toolbox consists of persecution, deception, and seduction. That's all he has. Persecution, deception, and seduction. If the devil can't destroy you through one, he'll always try to seduce you through another. How tempting is it to make compromises just to get along in the world? Who wants to be a social outcast? Who wants to forego those wonderful creature comforts that we have at our fingertips? What's a little meat offered to idols? What's a little incense offered to Caesar? Why not be like Naaman who asked to bow in the idol's house outwardly, but not inwardly? But you see, he's like an actor or an actress playing an immoral part in a licentious play. I gave my body for that role, but I withheld my heart from the deed. It doesn't work. You cannot compartmentalize like that. We are psychosomatic beings, body and soul, and what we do in the body counts. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And the Pergamum Christians sadly were being seduced by the devil's schemes. Just offer a little incense and withhold your heart and keep your job. Hendrickson says Pergamum was not fully awake to the dangers of this compromising attitude, this halfway covenanting with the world. Strong against persecution without, weak against immorality within. And so grave was the situation that Pergamum was issued an ultimatum. Repent, Jesus says. If not, I'll come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He would bring the word of judgment to bear upon those who compromise. And the Lord needs no other sword than that of his mouth. It's very sharp. And the situation here was dire. And the threat was severe. And the church was in danger. But as in every letter, we have the promise. He says, to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And of course, this hidden manna refers to Christ and all of his glorious fullness and sufficiency. The daily manna in the wilderness was a type of the Lord Jesus himself. 
This is what he tells us in John 6. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, he says. I came down from heaven and if anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And this manna, this hidden manna is concealed from the world, but it's revealed to the believer. You consider the mystery of the Lord's Supper. It's called a mystery, you know. Stewards of the mysteries of God. It looks like a simple snack, and the world scoffs at it. But Scripture says that it's a means of grace. The cup of blessing that we drink, there's a blessing in it. So Jesus promises that those who reject the pagan banquets will have a place at the heavenly feast. And the white stone with a new name, it's one of our glorious heavenly privileges. The new name represents the changed character and the glorified state of the believer. In the Old Testament, as you probably know, a person was given a new name to mark some type of new status. We have the example of Abram changed to Abraham, or Sarai changed to Sarah, or perhaps most notably, Jacob changed to Israel. So through saving faith and sanctifying grace, the believer becomes a brand new creature. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give, Isaiah 62.2. You see, the Christian is freed from guilt, cleansed from sin, welcomed into the family of God, and as an adopted child, he or she enjoys a new status and unparalleled privileges. <laughs> we can't even imagine them. And this is the promise that's held out to those who are resolved not to compromise. These blessings are tremendous. Suffering is not worthy to be compared. That's what he's saying. Henceforth, Paul says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, he says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So you see, we must not be content with just one virtue. We must seek them all. Pergamum was orthodox, but she was loose. Obedience there was uneven and it was asymmetrical. Do not think that because you keep the fifth commandment, but not the ninth, you are a faithful Christian. The psalmist says, I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. We must seek conformity to all of God's precepts, to the entirety of his word. All of his commands are backed by the same authority and serve the same end. They all require inward and outward obedience, head and heart, forbid sins and required duties. We cannot be content with strict orthodoxy and have loose orthopraxy, as Elder Gilliland would teach us. They go together. Christian character is like the tree of life in the city of God. It bears 12 kinds of fruit. But then also, I think this tells us to appreciate the use of afflictions and discipline for becoming mature believers. This is how the Lord Jesus lovingly trains us so that we may eat the hidden manna and get the white stone. 
In Hebrews 12, it puts it this way. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And you see, such discipline often comes to us through our loving Father's wise providence. He trains us through affliction, hardship, trials. What's that saying that my coach used to put up? No pain, no gain. If you've not endured difficulty, something may be wrong. You're being left alone. Those left undisciplined are called illegitimate children. You're outside the family. And though discipline is unpleasant, and it also yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, Hughes tells us that the strong Christian is the disciplined Christian. And that discipline may also come through the church. Shepherds must be willing to do it. The modern church is tolerant of sin. It's unhealthy. By and large, it is hesitant to discipline. And to ignore sin robs God's people of much-needed training, and it risks the health of souls, the blood of souls. That's what I have above my door to remind me Every time I walk into that office, the blood of souls is at risk. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. But of course, God's discipline is expressed. However it's expressed, it makes us more pure and precious. David even says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. There's a story about a woman who was visiting in Switzerland, and this particular woman saw a shepherd with his flock. Nearby, a sheep, an individual sheep, was suffering with a broken leg. She asked, what happened? How did that happen with the sheep and the broken leg? And this is what the shepherd said. Of all my sheep, this one is most wayward. He would not obey and often wandered close to the cliffs. In so doing, he led other sheep astray. I had no choice but to break it. The next day, I offered him food and he tried to bite me. So I left him alone for a couple of days and only then did he eagerly eat what I offered him. He showed signs of submission and affection. And from now on, said the shepherd, he will be a model sheep. No sheep will hear so quickly or follow me so closely. He will be to the others an example of devotion. You see, the sheep learn grateful obedience through suffering through taking up the cross daily. And so as Job concluded in the midst of his suffering, we say tonight, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the letter to the angel at Pergamum. Difficult as it is, it teaches us that there is a need for discipline in the church, 
as well as orthodoxy. And we pray that you'll help us to be aware of both. We welcome your wisdom, your fatherly care, and your direction. And we pray that you'll receive our praise tonight as we sing it with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.